Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Open up your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. And we are in a study in the life of King David. And we are in a section of David's life that we have called the Exile of David. This is a season of about 10 years before the time when David was anointed to be the king of Israel as a little shepherd boy. Um, and the time where he's going to be appointed and crowned as king, that's going to be a decade later. And this season in between is called the Exile of David. This is a season where he is absolutely running for his life. He finds himself a fugitive in a nationwide manhunt in his head uh, is what everybody wants. And so what he finds is that there's very few places that he can go where he's safe from being turned into insane, crazy, wicked King Saul. Saul is in the process of losing his mind, has already lost his soul and his integrity and everything else. Now what we're going to see is that there are two kinds of exiles. And the first kind of exile is not the kind you want to be in. This is, we'll call it the exile of, of Saul. This is an exile of rebellion. And this is the kind of exile where you, knowing what God's word says, knowing what God's word wants for you, choose to go the opposite direction and live in rebellion against God and his word. And what God most certainly promises and guarantees for anybody who would know what God's word says and you would go the opposite direction, you will begin to experience what we'll call a spiritual exile or distance from God or feeling very far from God. God's voice will get harder and harder to discern. And God, in his justice, actually will give you over to your sin. This is not an exile I would exhort for any of you to partake in. Uh, It is an exile that you choose Um, and you will be responsible for. But there's another kind of exile that we're going to experience this morning. This is the exile of David, and we'll call this an exile of circumstances. This is when life happens, when the uh, difficulties of life get so much that you feel crushed under the weight of them. Um, This is when the things that you did not expect happen. This is when the things that you never wanted to lose are lost. These are the moments where you didn't choose this. This is not some kind of cosmic karma where God has said, well, because when you were earlier and younger in your age, you did this, so I'm going to punish you now. This is just life. This happens. <clears throat> now, uh, should you expect that sometime in your life a spiritual exile because of circumstances is going to come upon you? Village Church, the answer is yes. Yes, absolutely. Many of you, in fact, most of you have already gone through intense seasons of spiritual exile because of circumstances that have come upon you. The pressure in these circumstances has been very weighty, and it actually has exposed you in ways that you never thought it could. Some of you are in it right now. And then there are a few of you in this room who you have never experienced this. And it is my job to make sure you are prepared for exile. Because life is hard, and this world is very sinful. And the big picture and the big trajectory of this world is that it's hostile to Jesus and his followers. And so you and I need to be prepared for when exile comes. And it comes like that. You don't see it coming. And as soon as it hits you, it will expose you. And look with me to your notes. And we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And we're going to watch how the exile of David begins to expose him both both positively and negatively. Now we find is that there's a little crack in David's heart. Um, Although he is a man of God, he has this issue, and this issue is actually going to 
um, poke at him for a while and actually will have devastating consequences. And the issue is his lack of honesty. And I don't know about you, but I am sort of relieved to know that the man after God's own heart is not perfect. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like an unattainable goal to have God look at me and say, you are a man after God's own heart. <clears throat> we learn, especially in this chapter with David, is that to be a man or a woman or a student or child after God's own heart does not mean perfection because only Jesus is perfect. Uh, in fact, the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God stumbles. And sometimes we do really, really ridiculous things. But here's the difference. The man of God, upon learning of this, stands up, repents, makes it right and changes. That's the difference. And so some of you have made some huge, huge, huge mistakes in your life. And you are not disqualified from being a man or a woman or a student or child after God's own heart. What qualifies you is you getting up and repenting. Can I get an amen from Village Church, right? Yep, amen. So here's what we find is David is going to be exposed. The pressure is on. We left David. Uh, he was in a field with Jonathan, and, and Saul just tried to throw his spirit, Jonathan, his son, and kill him for protecting David. And Jonathan says, David, get out of here. My dad's going to kill you. So David flees. And I love this. David functionally goes to church. Look at what verse 1 says. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Now, Nob is a city that you're probably not familiar with. This is a city of priests. In fact, um, this is a city where the tabernacle was. The tabernacle um, is this, we won't go into detail here, but basically the presence of God is centered upon and located where the tabernacle is. And so David, uh, he is in a, a place of exile. He's running for his life. So where does he go? He goes to the city where the priests are, where the tabernacle is, where the presence of God is, because David is a man after God's own heart. When, when everything comes in around the man after God's own heart, where does he go? To God. He goes right to God, and in this culture, at this time, God's presence was located right here in the city of Nob. There were 86 priests, um, all um, mostly related, and he goes to them, and Ahimelech is, is the main guy, and it says this, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and he said to him, why are you alone? Why is nobody with you? And Ahimelech is most likely trembling because he knows that um, Saul is trying to kill him. Now, if you're David, in this moment, you have a decision to make. Do I have integrity and tell the truth? Or do I lie? And here's what David says in verse 2. And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter by which I send you and with which I have charged you. Truth or lie? Lie. What David doesn't know right now, but we'll find out in chapter 22, is that this lie will cost Ahimelech his life and the lives of 84 other faithful priests of God with integrity. And God is going to be teaching David a very important lesson on the very front end of his exile. And it's this, that gaps of integrity in the leader leave, a heartbreak, leave heartbreaking collateral damage. That gaps of integrity in the leader leave heartbreaking collateral damage. And David, we're going to see this in a little bit, is going to have to come face to face with his lack of integrity. And he's going to experience the collateral damage in a very sorrowful way. Well, the second lie or deception we see is in verse 10 of chapter 21. And it says this, And David rose, and he fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and, and David his, his ten thousands. So 
I want to just draw out something for you that I find very, very interesting about this particular um, text right here. So who is from Gath? Anybody remember? Goliath the Philistine. So David, running away from King Saul, decides, I know what I'll do. I'm going to go to Goliath's hometown, um, where his mom and his dad and his brothers and his sisters and his nieces and his nephews and his uncles and his aunts all live. In fact, I've probably made widows of thousands of Philistine women. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to go over to Gath. I know what I'll do. I'm going to go to the king of the Philistines, and I'm going to go talk to them. And so David shows up, and the guys and the soldiers are like, wait a minute, king, uh, Achish, this is David. He has killed thousands of our men. Um, we need to do something about this. Now, what you don't know is that uh, just a few verses back, um, David went to Ahimelech the priest at Nob, the city of priests, and he looks at him and he says, uh, do you have any weapons? And Ahimelech says, oh, yeah, I have actually the sword that you used to kill Goliath. Do you want it? And David says, yeah. So I imagine David strolling into Gath, uh, up to the king of, of the Philistines, with this Goliath sword that he used to chop off his head. Now, he probably didn't do that. I guess, I'm assuming he had a little bit of tact. But, um, and I'm wondering, also, where is the head of Goliath in all this? Because we know he has it with him somewhere. Um, anyway, so David um, thinks it rational to walk in. And uh, so David, all of a sudden, verse 12, it says this, David took these words to heart, the words that the Philistines had recognized him. And I'm thinking as I'm reading, hi, David, 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 David. Why didn't you get scared in verse 10 (laughs) before you went? Like, something's happening. I think he's desperate. Uh, There's no rhyme or reason why he would go to Gath. And so it says, uh, David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And so David changed his behavior before them. And he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is crazy. This guy's nuts. Get him out of here. Why have you brought him to me? And where do you think David learned to act like a crazy man? King Saul, I mean, here's David with the lyre, and Saul filled with a demon, ranting, raving, and raging back and forth, yelling out profanities, trying to calm him down, throwing spears at people. David has probably a pretty good idea of what that means. But here, here's where actually many commentators are trying to come to, come to consensus. And the, the question is, uh, did David lie and deceive? Um, did what he do in this, was this uh, uh, dishonest? And I kind of think it is in the general context of of chapter 21 that what the authors are trying to show is that David struggled in this season and that this exile, exile, although it exposed some very negative things about, or positive things about him, it also exposed that he has an integrity gap in his heart. Now, you guys can go home on Father's Day. You guys can have arm wrestling matches about whether or not you think um, David sinned by acting like an insane man and and was dishonest or whether or not you think that that is a a completely appropriate response. But here's what I want to ask you. If you are watching David and he is acting like an insane, crazy person with spit coming down his face, ranting and raving, and he's faking it, do you think David's in a desperate place? I'm going I'm to say most likely, yeah. Do you think David is very, very overwhelmed and burdened and scared? Actually, yeah, the text says that he's actually very, very afraid. So David wrote a psalm that took place um, right after he left Gath, um, and it's Psalm 142, and I want to read you the first um, four verses of Psalm 142. David gives us this glimpse, this sneak peek into uh, very deep places of his heart. We'd imagine David alone. He's in a cave. Here's what he says. 
with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. Relent, relent, stop. This is too much. And he's like a couple months into what's going to be a 10-year exile. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is no one, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. Now, this last line, I think, is so valuable. He says this, no one cares for my soul. Is David in exile? Yeah. Is David desperate? Yeah. And I want you to imagine if you were David's God and David was your child, you loved David and you wanted what was best for David. And what was best for David at this point was not just being set free, but going through this extended season of exile so God could forge in him the character that he needs. How would you care for David in this season? And what I love is in the next section of your notes, we're going to start in verse 22 or chapter 22, is that the Lord so uniquely, so specially tailors a plan of encouragement for, uh, for David um, that gives him the ability to sustain and endure through a decade-long exile. And here's what I want to ask you to do is we walk through, I'm just going to show you the different things that the Lord does for David in this season, is that some of you have been, as we said, in exile in the past. And in your notes in the bottom right-hand section, there's a part of your notes that says thoughts, takeaways, and other ideas, or something of the sorts. And here's what I want you to do. Um, I would like to ask you just to jot down in your own personal exile all the ways that the Lord personally encouraged you in your desperation and your loneliness and your, de- your depression and your exile, whatever circumstances you went through and your fear and your trembling and your loneliness, what were all the ways that God ministered to you, supported you, and encouraged you? Some of you, again, you don't have this season of exile as a reference point. And what I want you to do is pay very careful attention to the ways that God ministers to David in this season. And I think what happens is that when we're in the season of exile, uh, it is so easy for us just to overlook the many, many beautiful, profound, and personal ways that the Lord encourages us and sustains us. And instead, when we're in exile, we pray this, God, get me out now. God, get me out now. God, get me out now. Save me, save me, save me. Get me out now. And really, that's not actually what the Lord intends to do with you. And, And in fact, he's actually doing something very different. He is personally ministering to you, supporting you, encouraging you, and being gracious to you. And we often, because we're so obsessed with getting out, we miss the mercy and the grace and the supporting encouragement of God in the process. And so what I want to do with you is we're going to walk through um, uh, 1 Samuel chapters 22 and 23. Now there are three threads that are going through these chapters. The first thread is Saul's um, personal and spiritual exile. We're going to watch Saul go down the tubes. He just becomes more and more depraved uh, and spiritually inept. Uh, we've already gone knee-deep into that, so we're going to bypass some of that because we've already examined that thoroughly. The second um, thread you're going to see is that everybody is hunting for David, and people are willing to turn him over to Saul just like that. Uh, we've talked about that quite a bit. Uh, the third thread, and the one that we're going to go deep on, is uh, the Lord is providentially, kindly supporting David through this exile. And so let's look at these Um, different ways. Number one, God protects David's family. I want you to imagine if you're the king and you have somebody who wants your throne, 
um, and you want that person dead, do you want the rest of their family dead? And the answer is yes, because the entire person's family is a threat to your throne. David is running. He's in Gath. He is um, all over the place, and he is trying to save his life. But I promise you this. Here's what's going through David's mind. Is my family dead? Did he get to my mom and my dad? Did he get to my brothers? And this is heavy on David's heart, and I think the Lord knows this. And I imagine David is in the cave, and he's praying. He's like, Lord, protect my mom and dad. Protect my brothers from from Saul. He's crazy. I know he's going to go after them. We get to chapter 22, verse 1. It says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now, this is um, actually very, very close to Bethlehem. And the reason that's important is because as David was a shepherd, he would be taking his sheep in and out of these caves. David knew this land and this territory very well. And it's in this cave where he most likely wrote Psalm 142. And it says this, And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. They know their lives are in danger. David knows his life is in danger. And that when they came, I guarantee you, here's what happened. David got down on his knees and he prayed, Dear God, thank you for in your providence, in your sovereignty, in your graciousness, in your kindness, bringing my family to me here now. Because my heart was burdened. And I guarantee you that this is probably one of the biggest burdens on his heart. And the Lord just said, I got you. I've got you under control. I've got your family under control. I've got this whole thing under control. Second thing David does, or God does for David, is he surrounds him with other broken people. Look at what happens in chapter 2. And everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is bitter in soul gathered to David. And he became commander over them. What a great army. Anybody want to start with an army like that, right? A bunch of complainers, whiners, bitter, um, depressed, frustrated. I mean, this is probably like a pretty miserable group of dudes to be around. Uh, And there were about 400 of them. I mean, I'm like, okay, I'm, I have a hard enough time being around one or two of them, but let alone 400 of them. And, and, and I love this here because God, like sometimes I love this, when you're in exile and when things are just really difficult, isn't it just like God to bring people into your path whose lives are worse than yours? Right? Just to give you that perspective, and you're like, well, at least my life isn't as bad as yours, you know? I mean, we hate saying that, but in his mercy, that's actually honestly what he does. And not only does he bring them, but he actually asks you to serve them and minister to them. And there's something about these seasons of exile where our sin says, I'm going to be alone, I'm going to isolate myself, it's going to be me, myself, and I, I'm going to whine and complain and be bitter. And the Lord is actually saying, just because you're in exile, just because life is hard and everything's coming down around you, it does not mean that your mission has stopped. Like, I made you to not wallow and sulk, but to serve and to give your life away. And I love that even in this moment where David has every reason to whine and complain and write songs and write poetry and sing to a cave and hear his echo and just have that be his life, uh, he doesn't. He stops and the Lord brings him these people. And David realizes, I got to take care of these people. I got to train these people. I got to give these people purpose. It's awesome. I love that. And the Lord just has a very interesting sense of humor. I also love that this is a really neat, microcosm picture of the kind of people that come to Jesus. So if you look at these people and you say, ha, that's not me, these are the kind of people that come to Jesus. And Jesus actually surrounds himself with people who are broken, people who are in debt, and most Americans can give me a big fat amen on that one, people who are distressed and depressed and hurting and sad, and that Jesus looks out and says, you guys, you have heavy loads, you come to me. And I love that David, excuse me, is a picture of Christ in a very meaningful and beautiful way here. Number three, God provides unlikely hospitality 
for David and his family. David went there from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And here's what's going on with David. David is running for his life, city to city to city to city. And he's got his mom and dad who are old in age and they cannot run around and flee um, like David and his brothers can. And David is grieved for them. And he steps back and says, I have to take care of my mom and dad. I got to figure out what to do with them. And so David actually um, goes from uh, Philistia to Israel, crosses the Jordan River and ends up in Moab. Now Moab and Israel, they're not buddies. This is not a safe place for David to be. And so David steps back and he says, well, you know what? My great-great-grandma was Ruth the Moabite. Their grandparents, or their grandma was Ruth the Moabite. So maybe, just maybe, they will be gracious to us. And when you walk into Moab, there's no telling what's going to happen. They could cut his head off in a moment or they could give him um, hospitality. And David just trusts in the Lord. And, and here's what happens, verse 4. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stared, stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. I guarantee you, and that night David sat down and he wrote a prayer to God and he said, thank you for loving and taking care of my family. Because I don't care who you are, I don't care how manly you are, I don't care how big of a warrior you are. Um, when you're in this kind of exile and your life is being hunted, your care and concern for your mom and your dad and your brothers um, is off the charts. And I think God in his mercy just comes to him and says, I got you, David. David, I will take care of you. Trust me, trust me. Number four, sending godly people to encourage David. Verse five, then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now here's what we know. Gad is a prophet. We don't know much about this guy, so we know that God has given him words to say and sent him to David. And this is kind of how I imagine this. I want you to imagine that you're in exile. You are alone. You are struggling you are overwhelmed. You are crushed. Um, you don't feel like anybody cares for you. And yet we know our theology tells us that God loves and cares for you in those moments. And here's what I imagine God does. God is sovereign uh, over his church. He sends the Holy Spirit where he wants. And he looks at one brother and he puts the Holy Spirit in him and prompts him and says, you, um, I want you to call him up and I want you to encourage him says to his sister, she's shopping, and she sees something. She says, oh, I think this, I don't know where this thought came from, but I just think this guy would love this. And she, she buys it for him, and she brings it over to him. Another person is praying at night. It's the wee hours. They can't sleep, and, and he just comes to mind, and, and uh, she's praying, and she's praying, and all of a sudden she's like, I need to pray for this person. And then the next day she calls up and says, hey, I just want to let you know, I don't know why you are on my mind last night. I was praying for you. And all of a sudden, within a very short period of time, this person who felt so alone is realizing that God loves me so much that he is orchestrating saints from all over the place and his Holy Spirit is putting um, ideas in their mind and, and, and prompting them and provoking them to encourage me and to comfort me. And this is so much how God works. And so many of us are sitting there, and, and let's be honest, don't raise your hand, but it's most of us, we'll be doing something and we're like, maybe I should write them a letter. Maybe I should give them a call. Um, maybe I should buy them this present. Maybe I should go to their house. Maybe I should visit them in the hospital. And we say, oh, I'm too busy. And that prompting, more times than not, when your prompting is to go be generous and to care for somebody, I'm going to tell you, more times than not, that is a prompting of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is always orchestrating care for those who are in exile. He's orchestrating his people. I don't care where you're at in the world or what's going on. Sometimes he's just orchestrating people to get on their knees and pray. And we will never see the beautiful tapestry of orchestration that God is navigating. But you know what happens is David is sitting there and God knows before David's even in this place that he needs to tell Gad to get over there and give them the encouragement 
encouragement he needs and the word he needs. If Gad did not come to David, they would be dead and Saul would have gotten them. And I love that. Like, you got to just step back and think. I have the Holy Spirit, and God, every single day that I get up, I am responsible for being on mission, for going where the Holy Spirit tells me to go. And if you will listen just a little bit, he will motivate you and inspire you to care for people, encourage people, edify people, and build them up. And if you're going to say no, that's sad for you because he will continually move in someone else's heart to do it. He will make sure his children are cared for, and you and I are just forfeiting the beautiful opportunity to participate in what God is providentially doing in every single child of God alive. He's a genius navigating our care and our concern all the time. Now, between encouragements number four and five, um, the text goes back to Saul. And what I think is probably one of the darkest places in Saul's life, and I'll give you a summary of what happens. When David was talking to Ahimelech, the priest, uh, he lied to him and deceived him about his purpose. But there's this guy named Doag, the the Doag the Ammonite, I think that's what it is. And uh, Doag is sitting there, and he's watching the whole conversation happen. And Doag goes and tells King Saul that the priests uh, gave help to David and his men knowingly. And he basically lies to King Saul so that King Saul takes men over to Ahimelech and these priests. There's 86 priests in total. He brings men over there, and he says to them, did you help David? And they say, no. And they're actually all telling the truth. They, said, they came and said, they, they told the king exactly what happened. David told us he was on a mission for you. We just, we thought we were actually helping you out. And Saul goes crazy. He just goes nuts. And he looks at all of his men, and he says, I want you all to kill all the priests. And everyone there knows that this is wrong. Everyone knows that the priests aren't lying. And so the men step back and say, we, we are not going to kill these priests. They did not do anything. And finally, um, Saul looks at Doag the Ammonite and says, Doag, you kill him. And Doag proceeds to execute 85 priests with the sword. Uh, A very bloody, terrible thing to watch. And there's one person who is actually watching most of this happen. And this person's name is Abiathar. And the reason this is so meaningful and hard for Abiathar is because these are his brothers his sons, his dad, his uncles. These are, this is his family. And he had to watch as Saul unjustly executed through Doag the Ammonite every single one of the men that he loves, 85 of them. And his first thought is, I'm going to David because where do hurt and broken people go? David. And we get to number five, that God brings David even more people for him to care for and to minister to. In verse 20, it says this, But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped, and he fled to David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg, sorry, the Edomite, not Ammonite, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul. And I imagine at this point, um, Abiathar is like, wait a minute, you knew that? Like, that doesn't really help me very much. Like, you, you knew this was going to happen? And David now, I love this, even though David royally messed up, what does a man after God's own heart do? He repents. He owns it, and he makes it right. I love David's response. He owns it. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. In fact, Abiathar stays as David's priest the rest 
of his life. But this man, broken um, in ways that David cannot even begin to understand, is now given and brought to David. And David has the opportunity, even while he's in exile, to care for somebody, honestly, whose life is exponentially worse than anything David could imagine at that point. And isn't that just like God? When we're wallowing and complaining and we think our lives are so hard, he says, let me bring you somebody whose life is even worse. Now you minister to them. Number six, God calls David to do very specific things for himself. And here's what happens. <clears throat> Chapter 23, verse 1. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kayla and they're robbing the threshing floors. Anybody had your threshing floor robbed? Anybody? Well, let me tell you why this is important. You're going to... You do not want to have this happen to you because uh, they would uh, plant food all year long. They would weed it and water it and get everything ready. And at the right time, they would um, pick it and then they would put it on their threshing floor, which means it's ready. It's like this is the place where they would store it, like some things had to be done. But generally speaking, all the hard work is done, okay? And so the Philistines would wait and they would wait and they would wait and they would wait till the food was on the threshing floor. Then they would go take all of their food so that they didn't have to work for any of it. And these people would work all year long and then they would be left with nothing. It is like you getting paid once a year. And once a year, you get money to pay all your bills, to feed your children, to feed yourself, whatever you need, all, that all happens at once. And there is a robber, and he is waiting all year long for the day when you get paid, and he times it perfectly. And on your way home with your money, he robs you and leaves you with absolutely nothing for the rest of the year. Would that not be devastating? And a whole city of this is happening in Keilah. This is a Jewish city. And David inquires of the Lord. I love this. David, his heart is still to serve and to lead and to care for his people. And it says this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said, of course, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, we're afraid in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? And they're all afraid. And David says, I'll go ask the Lord again. And the Lord says again, go, do this. And David, verse 5, and his men went to Keilah, fought with the Philistines, and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now what's so frustrating about this is that uh, in the next verses, basically here's what happens. David goes to the Lord again and says, Hey Lord, um, are these people going to turn me into Saul? And God's like, yep, they're totally going to rat you out. Uh, these people really have no gratitude whatsoever. They are loyal to Saul, so they're glad you saved them, but um, you got to get out of there like right now. And what's so sad is that sometimes, you know, you serve and you give your best and then there's betrayal. And do you think David at this point wants to say, you know what, I'm not helping these Jews anymore. I'm on my own. I'm done with this. And the Lord is not going to let him do that. The seventh way that God, I think, just personally encourages David is he speaks to him in so many different ways. Five times in chapter 23, 1 through 13, David comes to the Lord and says, hey, God, I need something. Will you give me an answer? And you know what the Lord does every time? He answers him clearly. On the other hand, let's, let's contrast this with Saul. Saul is begging to hear the voice of God. Saul wants to know, and God is completely silent. Why isn't God speaking to me? Because you know what, Saul? You're in rebellion. Your exile is not one of just circumstances. You've chosen this. And so I've chosen to be silent toward you. And yet David here, the one who is hiding and fleeing in caves, has the very presence of God with him. Verse, or chapter number eight, God encourages David by protecting David from even greater harm. Notice the, how many times the word wilderness comes up here in verse 14. David remained in the strongholds, in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul, Saul, these are hard to say together, Saul sought him every day, 
but God did not give him into his hand. So here's what I want you to imagine. Every day you lay your head down and Saul is on your tail and the Lord miraculously, one way or another, just saves you. And the next day you get up and Saul is like right on your tail and the Lord just through some providential, amazing miracle, he saves you. And you get on your knees every night and you're like, God, I cannot believe I got through today. And this is what it was like for David. It was a daily occurrence where his life was being threatened and every day he had to trust in the Lord that the Lord would be his defender. I love that God is providentially just working things out for him. Although David is sitting here saying, it feels like you're not on my team. But whose team is God on? David's. David's. The ninth thing he does, he sends David his closest friend during his most difficult time. Verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horush. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horush and strengthened his hand in God. Like David's sitting in his palace and the Lord just puts it on his heart and says, you need to go take care of your brother. Life is hard. He needs encouragement. And Jonathan um, sacrifices, puts his neck on the line, goes to his brother and strengthens his hand in God and says this in verse 17, David, do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, he also knows this. And the two of them, verse 18, made a covenant before the Lord. Have you ever been in that lowest part of your life, and the Lord just knows exactly what you need? And he brings that brother or that sister to you in that perfect moment, and it's just like, it's a reminder, I've got your back. The Lord is an encourager and a comforter and a helper and a sustainer. And when you're in exile, this is what we lean on. Number 10, he saves the day at the 11th hour. This is actually one of those really dramatic scenes where um, finally this is the closest that Saul has got to him. And it says, and Saul and his men um, went to seek David. And David was told... So he went down to the rock, and he lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And as Saul and his men were closing in on David, David and his, and his men to capture them. So here's what I want you to imagine is happening. Saul's on one side. He knows they're on the other side. So he flanks over to the left, flanks over to the right, sends a group over the top and says, this ends today. We are going to take him down. I am sick of this. Um, this is frustrating. It's humiliating. Take him down. Let's go. And David is at a point where he's saying, Lord, I don't know how you're going to get me out of this, but you've got to do something. Because literally I'm being flanked on every side here and it feels completely hopeless. And the Lord is like, that's exactly where I want you. Do you trust me, David? Do you trust me? Okay, like I've ordained this circumstance. If I didn't want this to be happening, I would have stopped it. Like you're here and I'm exposing you. What's gonna happen, David? And then verse 27, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul, he just literally stops and returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there, and he lived in the strongholds or the caves of Engedi. I guarantee you, David got on his knees that night and said, God, I thought this was, I thought this was it. Uh, I mean, yeah, you've protected me time after time after time after time, but like, for sure I thought I was a goner. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for sustaining me. Thank you for giving me everything I need in this season of exile. And I guarantee you that was a very meaningful moment. The last one, I want you to look with me at Psalm chapter 57. <clears throat> when David is in the cave, most likely this cave in Engedi, he pens another psalm. 
And I particularly love this psalm. It seems to be um, a little bit later. And in the first psalm, you see this idea that um, David is just in the thick of it and he is in despair. Uh, now he's at a point, it seems, where he's been in exile and running for his life long enough that he's got a little perspective. And I want you to imagine your life is, is on the line every day. You are in exile, literally. And you sit down in your cave and you're going to write a song. And this is going to be a song that's for the choir master, meaning it's going to be for um, a whole bunch of people to sing. So David's probably writing different harmonies and different things for different parts of the, of, of the, of the choir. And he's thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the people of God sing this for generations. And 57 verse 4, here's what he says. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. <clears throat> and at this point, the prayer should be, save me, get me out. But I think he's learned something by now, and here's what he's learned. Be exalted O God, above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. His exile has lasted long enough that his prayer is now not save me, but be glorified. Do you see what's happening in his heart? Do you see what the exile is doing to him? Do you see that the exile is preparing him to be the king? It keeps going. They set, a, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O oh God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O oh harp and lyre. I will wake the dawn. And here's the idea that he's up in the middle of the night in his distress. And his response to his distress and his exile is worship. And he's up and so he worships the Lord until the sun comes up over the horizon. And it's as if he's awakening the dawn with his worship and his music. And this is how he responds. Awake, my glory, verse 8. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Like, why would you give thanks? You're in exile. You're suffering. You're running for your life. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the people. I will sing praises to you among the nations for your steadfast or faithful love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That's maturity. That's somebody who has gone through exile and learned. Okay, How many of you... Uh, in exile can say, when you're in a cave, when someone's hunting your life, when you've been anointed or promised something that you don't have it, and you can say, you're faithful. You are steadfast. You never let me down. More than I want to be saved, I want the name of Jesus to be lifted high. Like, that's what exile does. It changes you. And if you go through exile with God, you will come out way better, way more Christ-like than when you went in. And here's the question. How are you going to handle your exile? Because it has come. For some of you, it is here. And for every one of us in this room, it's coming again. And this exile may last the rest of your life, and it might just be a season. But who you are at the end of this depends on how you interact with God in the middle of it. Oh, we got to be done. And I want to close with this final thought for you and encouragement. I think there's a lie that I, I really, I, the Bible just doesn't support it, but it's a lie that if we can kill it right now in some, I would love to do that. 
And the lie is this, that the Lord would never ordain your suffering. And that somehow when bad stuff happens, we step back and we say, God, it's your obligation if you love me to make me happy and to get me out of this. And God actually steps back and says, you're in this on purpose because I'm trying to forge you and form you and transform you into the image of Jesus. And I do have stuff I want you to do later, but I can't use you like that until this, 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 this stuff is weeded out of you. And so we step back and it changes completely how we look at our exile. We just step back and we say, I'm not necessarily asking you to take me out of this. I'm asking you to change me and transform me. Do what you need to do. Take as long as you need to do it. And I think if God at the beginning of this went to David and he told him, hey, David, by the way, this is going to last a decade, I think it would have crushed him. I think it would have totally crushed him. And the Lord doesn't tell us how long the exile is going to be, and I'm grateful for that because I think if he did, it would crush us. And I think the Lord at every moment and every day, his mercies are new and he sustains. And here's my question as you're thinking about your past exiles. How did God personally minister and encourage you in that season? Open your eyes for the next one when it comes because his fingerprints will be all over it. And he will be intervening and encouraging and sustaining and supporting in ways that you could not imagine. But we need to open our eyes and look first. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are a God of all comfort. You help us. You teach us. You train us. You discipline us. Lord, you are making us. And God, this happens um, more times than not through difficulty and through suffering and through tension and hardships. I wish it was not that way. I wish life was easy, but we've been here long enough to know that um, there are seasons that are just difficult and crushing. But God, there is no season through which you give to your children that you will also not sustain us through. And so God, we trust you. Even though sometimes we don't want to, even though sometimes we don't feel it, um, we do trust you. We know in our heads that you will do what's best and right for us and that you will give us the grace we need. Uh, but God, our hearts sometimes don't feel that. And so I pray, God, that you would continue to show us how the many beautiful and specific and specially tailored ways that you minister to each of us. And God, I pray that we would grow in our reliance on you, uh, ultimately our ability to suffer so that we might give Jesus the most amount of glory in every season, the good and the hard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.